Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Hi, today I'm here with Jake Taylor. He's a very thoughtful value investor who manages money via Farnham Street Investments. He's the co-host of an excellent podcast, Value After Hours, which premieres live every Tuesday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I highly recommend you check that out. He wrote a great fiction book, The Rebel Allocator, which teaches people the principles of capital allocation through an engaging fictional story. He recently founded a company, Journalytic, which is an investment journal app designed to improve investor processes. So welcome to the podcast, Jake. Thanks, VSG. It's good to be hanging out with you. And I I, I might have to steal that introduction because when someone asks me, what do I do? You know, it usually takes me about a half hour to get through all that stuff that you nicely summarized in, you know, 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why don't we start with um, your journey in investing? So how'd you get interested in, in investing? Sure. You know, starting out, I, I'd always been into saving money and I just was like, kind of like a mutual fund investor for the most part. And I happened to, I was working, running the power grid for the state of California as basically like an electrical engineer. And I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do when I grew up at that point. I was still, you know, in my early mid twenties and I decided to go back and get my MBA so that I had all my options open. If I wanted to go into management, let's say, and I was doing this working professionals program at UC Davis, and I ended up winning this lottery kind of randomly in the first year that I was there of the program. And I got the opportunity to travel to Omaha and have lunch with Warren Buffett and hear him speak. And he's done that for lots of schools over the years. And it was just this really transformative experience. And he, you know, of course, had well thought out, articulate, intelligent answers to every single question. And I was just blown away. Like, how the hell do you get to be like this guy? So I started doing more digging and it turns out that he just liked to get a good deal when he was investing. And I realized, oh, I've always liked to get a good deal too. I never liked paying retail for anything. I, you know, I'd go on Craigslist and buy something and then sell it on eBay as an arbitrage. And I was always looking for little ways to to do stuff like that. And when it turns out that when you do that in the context of public, you know, partial ownership of businesses, they call that value investing. I just didn't know that it had a name. So it made perfect sense to me. It was like that inoculation that that Buffett's talked about. And so I was like, man, I, I really want to do more in this space. I find it infinitely fascinating. And I was very lucky that my boss at the time at the Energy Place was also a big Buffett fan. And he actually was on the fast track to be the CEO of the company and ended up leaving and surprising everybody. And he left to go start his own fund. So I said, hey, can I like basically be an intern and mop the floors and whatever? You don't have to pay me. And he said, okay, so I, you know, I'd basically go, I worked for him part-time while finishing school and also working full-time, having our first kid. It was, it was a busy time, but we love working together so much that we started Farnham Street together and kind of the rest is, is history. Very cool. So with the California power grid, what was yeah. that job like? That must've been an interesting, I know that the California power grid has been through a lot of drama, like in the early 2000s, they had all the blackouts that eventually got Arnold Schwarzenegger elected. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like, what What was that like? What was that job like? It was a great job. I came into it from 
I studied economics in undergrad and, you know, I was, I graduated in 2003 or 2002 and I was looking, yeah, 2003. And I was, uh, it was actually a pretty rough job market at that point. I don't, you know, people kind of forget about that, but I was looking for anything. Like I couldn't find, I was looking for any kind of job in the energy industry. And I thought I was going to end up maybe working at PG&E or another utility or something but I just couldn't get my foot in the door anywhere. And where I worked, this place, it was California ISO, that's what it was called. And they had a an operator and training program. And it was like no experience required. And I came in and I, you know, there were probably like 50 people in this room to take a test. And it was like these kind of weird like puzzles and like sort of just like basic aptitude stuff. And I was like, oh man, I've got no shot here. Like there's all these people, <laughs> they look, they look really smart. And I happened to make it through to the next round. And then it was more actually like psychological testing because it, it could be a very high stress job and they want to make sure that like you kind of have like a the right temperament for it. So, you know, they'd ask you all kinds of different questions and they try to stress you out. Like it was, it's kind of a weird experience, but I ended up making it through me and one other guy through that group of 50 and we, we got hired in as operators in training. And they then the next 18 months was basically cramming an electrical engineering degree, full-time work of studying and taking tests, just like nonstop to get through, to make you then eligible to get a job out on the floor, which looks like, sort of looks like mission control in, you know, like for NASA, where it's just like screens everywhere and charts and like all kinds of stuff moving around. And you're basically monitoring all of this information and and taking corrective action for if power lines get overloaded. And that the company also happens to run the the market for bulk electricity in California. So they're, you know, you're, you're helping to figure out like how much demand is going to be required uh, or how much demand's coming in, how much supply will be required to meet it in real time. And so it's just, just a constant balancing act that you're doing at all times. And how much are you importing from outside or exporting? And there's a lot of variables to it, but uh, great job. I'm like really well paid, amazing people to work with, terrific career, but it wasn't my calling. And the investment side was my actual calling. And, you know, I was drawn to that. So I, I eventually, I did both for a long time while I built up enough reps and built the business up enough to be able to leave. So, And in that job, is there anything that you've been able to apply into your investing? Yeah, great question. For sure. One of the most important things in that job is that you run the power grid in such a way that it is an, they call it N minus one. And that means like, no single piece of equipment that goes out can jeopardize to bring the entire system down. So you have to always be within the realms of, you know, if you could lose, what's the most damaging thing that you could lose and then still be able to operate and you can only go up to that line. So it's this really this concept of margin of safety that you see later in the investment world that everyone's, you know, kind of knows about at this point. Additionally, there's, when I, when I look at like, Berkshire, and I look at how they've operated, they've always kind of run with an N minus one mentality as far as like, there was always probably one more acquisition that they could have done and digested, but they didn't. There was probably always some piece of insurance that they could have underwritten, but they didn't because it wasn't quite priced enough for them. They've always been just very, very conservative. And that's the same mentality that the, the power grid has run with is you, it has to be maximum reliability. And so, you know, they're run with the same kind of mindset of maximum reliability and, you know, no interruptions, no zeros, basically. One other thing, too, is because it's engineering based, 
the grid and you can have a pretty good idea what will happen if you took a piece of equipment out of service, like where are the flows going to be then redistributed? There are procedures for everything. So, you know, when bad things happen, you know exactly which procedure to go look up and you're like, okay, here's how you mitigate this particular overload or this outage. And it's all been figured out and written down and pre-planned. And so, you know, it, what that does is it helps take a lot of the emotion out of the process of like, oh my God, the world's, you know, this is on fire. Like a lot of times, literally something's on fire. What do we do? There's never the ant- like question of like, oh, I don't know, like we're freestyling here now, like in the moment. No, you go to the procedure and you figure it out. And I think in the investment world, when it's well done, that same mentality has to be used where you got to pre-plan for when something that anything bad's going to happen that, you know, you wake up and your portfolio is down 50%. You should probably have a man overboard procedure that's ready to go, take it off the shelf and like, okay, here are the things I'm going to ask myself. Here's what I need to get comfortable with. And it shouldn't be a freestyling at that point. Like you should have very strict procedures that you're ready to execute on. Yeah, it's especially important to have that when you're out thinking straight. And then in a moment where you're, when your portfolio is down 50%, you're probably an emotional mess and need uh, need some very clear guidelines to follow. Exactly right. I mean, literally, I mean, your amygdala is going to be firing on overdrive, which will slow down other parts of your brain, like your neocortex, which is supposed to be thinking like clearly and slowly through things. That part can be taken offline at that point. Like you're in a survival situation. Like literally you can't help yourself out at that point. And so you have to have some intervention of being smart ahead of time because you're not going to be in the position to just like, oh, well, I'll just figure it out. Gotcha. That's super interesting. Yeah. Wes Gray, I think he talks about that too, about the importance of uh, having procedures and and military context, like standard operating procedures. Yeah. When you're, I mean, when your portfolio is down 50% and you're an emotional basket case, when you're getting shot at and people around you are dying, then that's probably a complete completely hyper situation where you need, you really need procedures. So I guess that's why it's such a big deal in the military and why he's brought that to investing. Yeah. But you know, what's interesting. I mean, I agree. Like I'm sure that the, the, the visceral bullets whizzing is a different level, but the amount of fear that goes into losing money is way over what it should be like when we just, if you were able to like sort of like zoom out and maybe be an alien that came down and looked at it and be like, oh, who cares? You know, I mean, relative to like, you're not in actually mortal danger, but it, you you yeah. feel like you are. And it's, you know, we're we're wired to feel that exact, almost similar to being shot at type of level of fear, you know, and it's, it's I think it's overblown, but there's nothing you can do about it. That's the wiring that we have. So we have to just understand that and, and be smart beforehand before we're in the firefight. Gotcha. So what would you say are your core investing principles? I consider myself an opportunistic investor, if that's even a thing. (laughs) doesn't fit into any kind of Morningstar style box very well or anything, but I'm just looking for things that to me seem really obvious where I don't have to have some crazy information edge or analytical edge. It's just like, for whatever reason, people are throwing this away. They can't own it for some structural reason. And it's just like really, really obvious stuff. And so I'm, and then I just have to be waiting around for that to happen and then have the courage when it does pop up to actually, you know, put my money into it. So there's a lot of periods where it's like, you don't feel like you understand what's happening and that's okay. Like you don't have to understand every single time period of the, of the market, but there are times where then it sort of lines up and it makes sense. And then you have to be willing to, to execute. So for me, you know, 2017, 18, 19, 
I felt like the prices didn't make much sense to me for hardly any security on planet Earth, practically. And I was looking a lot. What It was a very lonely time period for me. I just felt very out of step. But then, you know, the pandemic hit and a lot of things that I felt like I understood pretty well got reasonably attractive where I felt like they had pretty good perspective IRRs from where they were. And it, was, it wasn't hard to buy stuff at that point for me. And, you know, I bought a lot of energy at that point, like when prices turned negative for that little bit of time. And you, when I looked at the balance sheets of even like, you know, let's Chevron or Exxon, some of the bigger ones, and this was true throughout most of the industry. I mean, it was 50 cents on the dollar, zero returns on equity at that point, because they were down at sort of a scale where they just were not making any money really. But I knew that that was pretty temporary. I knew that physics-wise, we couldn't get off of hydrocarbons anytime in the next 10 years, probably at least. Just the sheer density of energy required to run the modern world required hydrocarbons. So there wasn't an existential risk to me at that point. These companies were going to survive. And if anything, you know, this just created the opportunity at that point. So it was very easy for me to buy a fair amount of energy in at that point. And you know, I didn't know how long it was going to take. I'd seen lots of value guys buying energy for the last five years before that and just getting killed by it. And I felt bad because I felt like I could have probably easily been one of them, but I wanted to wait until things are really, really obvious. And that is when it's, that's when it tipped over to really obvious for me at that point. Yeah. I remember hearing like 2016, Hey, energy is the lowest percentage of the S and P 500 ever. Uh, and then it just went on to just be painful for another it four kept going years. Less and less. <laughs> yeah. Well, it apparently it out yeah. at like 2% or something. Yeah. I think it bottomed out around 2%. Q1 2020. So yeah, that's wild. That, that was the time and energy going negative was the time. And then by that point, everybody willing to go long energy was already pretty bombed out. So well, you know, what's funny is I think that at some point, pretty much every asset will trade at a just ridiculously cheap price if you wait long enough. If you have the time horizon to wait, almost any trophy that you <laughs> that you would really want to own will someday be on sale if you can if you can take advantage of the behavioral aspects, which is waiting until it's really obvious. Yeah, that's probably a good point. You, th- you look at a lot of great companies, they're frequently available. There's been, t- there. whenever you look at the long-term trending and their prices, you'll see moments when they were available at pretty absurd PEs. Right. Like I know, like Coca-Cola, I mean, that's a pretty good example when Buffett bought it. I mean, it went from a nifty 50 stock, it's like a 40 PE or something insane. And then he's picking it up when it's like 9 PE, you know, like 15 years later. Yeah. And he, yeah. I'm sure he'd been following it for decades at that point, recognized how amazing of a business it was, but it was always, you know, pretty expensive. And then you needed you needed some kind of a, a screw up basically to for it to disconnect. But you also needed the underlying good business to not be compromised. And, it, and he realized that it wasn't. So they fixed it. And then, of course, you know, he he did quite well on that one. Yeah, I th- I'd say it worked out. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> did OK. I think his uh, yield, his his yield and dividends is equal to what he paid for the stock. So I think it's around like 40 percent right now. That's like, still pretty good. <laughs> yeah, forty percent annual yield on cost. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So, what do you think about energy today? I mean, it, I think it's a lot more complicated now. What do you think about the prospects for it now? Buffett seems to love it with Occidental. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting that he sold some Chevron though too, which I find that haven't quite figured out what's the the thesis between rotating basically some money from Chevron to X to Oxy. 
In general, I, you know, it's not as obvious to me as it was when it was half a book value for all of these companies. And now Chevron's like, gosh, closer to like two times book. But it's also earning 20 to 25% returns on equity at this point. So like all of a sudden, like it's kind of a good business. So yeah, it's difficult. Like on the one hand, you have some pretty compelling arguments for, you know, we're entering into maybe already in a recession, in which case, you know, energy demand is, is tends to come down. But I think also there's some pretty compelling arguments that, you know, there's, there's a, a billion people on earth right now who would love to climb up into a middle-class lifestyle. And it's going to require a lot of energy to do that. And so, and, and we also seems like we having to do increasingly heroic engineering efforts to, to keep the same amount of oil production going. So, you know, I don't know about, you know, is that mean like peak oil thesis or any of these things, but you could see, it wouldn't surprise me to see oil prices collapse from here because of a recession. And it wouldn't surprise me to see them go up to, you know, over $200 or something, a barrel, like take out the previous high because of just demand and increasingly difficult to find supply. So I guess my answer is that the future is pretty wide on the outcomes. But if I had to guess, I would say that over a longer period of time, I think oil is higher than it is today. So yeah, we, ha- maybe, we have the same you view. Hold on, you know, <laughs> maybe you hold through recognizing, like I didn't sell any of my energy yet either. So that's, it's been harder and harder to hold, obviously, but I tried to wait until I felt like I was getting a pretty good price for it in that I basically was like looking at return on equity and then projecting that into book value for a couple of years out and then saying, okay, well, what's the price to book then compared to like a look through one or two year book value? And am I, am I paying the right price or am I selling for the right price based on that? And so far, the answer has been, no, I need to hang on to it, but it's not as nearly as obvious. And I wouldn't be surprised if I got, you know, got kicked in the teeth a little bit on this over, especially over a one to two year horizon, maybe. Yeah. Why do you think so many people seem convinced that we can get away from fossil fuels so quickly? It seems so insane to me that like no debate about like the, uh, whether that's a good goal to have. But it seems like everybody thinks, or at least a few years ago, everybody thought we could just get away from this in 10 years. And I don't see how that's possible. Why do you think everybody got so all in on that idea? Well, you know what? I think our species needs to. Mm -hmm. And I think it's untenable the way that it is. Like we are taking a non-renewing, at least not renewing fast enough natural resource. Yeah, And we need to harness more of the sun's energy. Like, you know, that's that's where (laughs) you could look at the sun almost as a god, I think, in some ways, in that like all of life makes a living based on the sun coming and hitting earth. Like without that, there's pretty much no, there's nothing happening here. So the sun is the ultimate force of fighting entropy for us. Like it provides all of the energy that allows us to fight entropy. So in that instance, we have to figure out how to harness more of that sun and not depend on previously captured and condensed sunlight, which is what oil is. But I think it's 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 a matter of how if we move too quickly, we're basically saying, sorry, lower, you know, half of the Earth's population. You have to live in the dark ages so that everyone else can, you know, consume the oil that's that we do want to use, which I think is kind of a it's a it's a fairly grotesque idea, actually. So I, I don't know, like it starts to tip into politics, which I, I try not to do. But I think it like a lot of wishful thinking, I think, is the real answer if I was to boil it down. It's just 
you know, Lake Wobegon type of thing where they just hope that, well, we just have to get there. I, I agree. We do have to get there. I think it's just how long do we take to get there? Well, will actually determine how much human suffering happens in that in the interim. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I'm not really I'm not really sure either, but it sounds like a pretty good explanation of, of oh, why well, it's not the cheeriest topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's something that we definitely need to do, but it seems like it's not going to happen anytime soon. So it's definitely a, a commodity that we need. Well, uh, and I mean, I think I think Munger's right that these chemical feedstocks that come from these carbon chains mm-hmm. are so valuable as plastics and paint and all of this other stuff that we make out of it that it is pretty foolish of us to be just burning it to like you know go to the store or whatever <laughs> like we should probably figure out some better ways to do that as a species and save some of these hydrocarbons for future generations that might need them for some very very important material science yeah, to me, that's the scariest part is like we could possibly run out of it and our global food supply is, is dependent on it. And yeah, that wouldn't that would be pretty bad for humanity if, if we just kind of wasted it all on nonsense. Yes, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the rebel allocator. So I'm going to go right to the top. So you got a phone call from Charlie Munger about the rebel allocator. What was that like? Yeah, most surreal 35 minutes of my life, I suppose. <laughs> As someone who does, has attended a lot of the Berkshire Hathaway meetings, listened to the annual meetings a lot, his voice is very kind of etched into my psyche. And so to then be actually on the phone and hearing that voice made it a very surreal experience. But yeah, I mean, he, you know, he was very gracious, but also like kind of funny in that he, <laughs> he, he called, he said, you know, I, I started reading this, your book and, uh, you know, before I knew it, I'd, I'd read the whole damn thing, almost like kind of like he was mad that he read the that he had to read the whole thing, which I thought was pretty, pretty funny. And then he said that, you know, he re- he thought that it should be made into a movie is actually what he wanted to talk about. And he had actually like individual character ideas about, you know, how to make it more movie like, which I thought was funny. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was amazing. And actually, probably the most surprising thing, I mean, getting a call from him at all is is hugely surprising just because he's. Charlie Munger. And, you know, he's 90 at that time, probably what, 95 or 94. Not that much time left. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, like why waste it calling some somebody, you know, who doesn't know to to talk about a book that, you know, no one, that a very small percentage of the world has read. But I mean, that kind of speaks to his character, which I thought is is pretty cool. But <laughs> yeah, what's more surprising that, than that he read the book was that he had been reading my letters, actually, and was actually told me, and this was 2019, he said, you know, don't feel bad about not being able to find a lot of interesting investment ideas. I'd actually be more worried about you if you did have a lot of you know ideas that you thought were compelling. So it's like, oh, man, that made me feel better about, <laughs> you know, having felt like I was on dr- drilling a lot of dry holes over the last four years. But yeah, just a very incredible experience. That's amazing. So not only did he read your book, but he was reading your letters and following you. That, that's amazing. I almost still don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So are there plans to turn it into a movie? Have you talked to anybody else about that? I have. There was, I had a, somebody who was working on a, like a screenplay and it kind of died on the vine, basically. I mean, it's it's just been, I've been busy with other projects that I'm, mm-hmm. you know, kind of more enthusiastic about. And I know even with, you know, 
all the the buying that's been happening, you know, from being, you know, all these uh, content providers who have been just throwing billions of dollars out the door to to get content, uh, the Netflixes and the HBOs and everybody. You would have thought if it, if there was a time where you could get something that was marginal greenlit, you know, maybe that was the the era to do it. But even then, like the chances of anything ever getting made is is a huge, you know, huge, dauntingly small probability. So, yeah, you know, I figured maybe someday if somebody like really gets enthusiastic about it and wants to work on it, I'm I'm open to the idea. But in the meantime, I'm I'm busy working on my other stuff. Who would be your ideal person to play Mr. X? Oh, man. You know, Clint Eastwood probably would have been really good. Probably still would be good. I'm not saying he he wouldn't, but uh, by the time it gets made, he may not be around to, to make it. But I kind of had him in my head as what he looked like potentially. Like Gran Torino era yeah, Eastwood. Ex- okay. Exactly. Yeah. Get off my lawn kind of. A... <laughs> <laughs> okay. So in the book, the the main character is a left-leaning journalist college student, and he comes to learn about capitalism and some of the virtues from Mr. X. So how much of your own life story was put into the book? Like, is that, was that your journey? No. I mean, there are plenty of things that I did steal from real life, obviously. Like they say, write what you know. So I, you know, I tried to take little pieces and and fold them in just partly for fun, partly because then it's easier to write about because you've actually seen it with your own two eyes and you're not just like making stuff up. But in that instance, no, I didn't. That wasn't my background. That was a little bit of a literary device, actually, because, you know, in any any story, what makes it compelling is there has to be like a progress for the main characters. There has to be some kind of growth, a hero's journey. And so the farther that I could kind of pull the bow back to one side, the farther of an arc that the character had to travel and, and grow. So if he started out on one edge already and then just like moved a little bit, there's that's not as interesting. So I made him um, very actually skeptical and outwardly antagonistic about capitalism and for, for good reasons based on, you know, his history. And then that gave him the farthest arc to travel to to grow towards a different understanding of the world. That's really cool. So when you were writing that book, so how did you, so it seems like this was your first work of fiction, right? First work of anything, really. So how <laughs> how did you go about um crafting like such a kind of satisfying narrative and understanding like things like character development and how to proceed with that? Like that seems like something that you kind of develop over a long period of time with writing books. So how you it seems like your first work of fiction was very was very good and very well put together. How'd you go about doing that? I cheated and I, I read other books about how to write those types mm-hmm. of things. You know, I read books on writing, like the actual writing process to help me understand like, oh my God, it's really more like a job. Like you have to show up every day. And, you know, I forced myself to sit in the chair at 8 a.m. And even if like nothing, and when you're first starting, like to starting, you're staring at a blinking cursor and you're trying to type and it's like, it's not coming at all. And you're, you know, you, you get that feeling of dread or that, oh my God, I need to go like work on these other things. Like there's really important pressing things I should be doing right now. Nope. You got to sit in that chair for two hours. I don't care if you don't get anything done, but you know, eventually you kind of start pecking away at it and then it starts to flow. And then before you know it, like three hours has gone by in an instant and you're like, oh, and then you're pretty much spent. And then everything that you type after that is garbage. And so you just have this and you just have to show up every single day and just like keep grinding on it. But I read books on screenplays actually. And so 
I mocked out like scene by scene what it would look like, you know, each character, like what do they try to accomplish in that scene? You know, Mr. X's health, for instance, is like, okay, he's, you know, it said like, and literally like on a, a cork board with, with three by five cards representing each scene, like what was happening, what were the lessons that were going to be taught? What was the character trying to accomplish? How is Mr. X's health deteriorating? So he like, he went from a seven to a six in the next scene. And I'm like trying to write about and show that like things are getting worse. So it was very process driven and based on books, you know, that helped me to accomplish something that I had no idea how I would have done it without the help of people who have been, you know, working on that kind of stuff for, for decades. And even reading a few books that supposedly like had really good snappy dialogue. Like I tried, I read those like, okay, I'm looking for like, how do you write good dialogue? And I, you know, (laughs) if you read some Amazon reviewers, you know, I didn't, I wasn't successful on that front, but uh, I I gave it my best that, (laughs) you know, try to make the dialogue as snappy as I could. And there's been enough people who who've given me compliments that, you know, like it, it went down pretty easy to read and they learned a lot in the process and they didn't, it didn't feel like work and yet they learned things, which is what I was actually going for. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it did. It was a compelling story on its own without any of the business stuff. And then I think you were able to add in actual business lessons into it, which was a much better way to teach some of these ideas about capital allocation through that kind of fictional narrative where there's you're emotionally invested in what's going on rather than just kind of like a dry finance book talking about these ideas. Yeah, and I think that's the only way like we're going back to like, you know, what are we hardwired for and psychologically, we're hardwired to sit around a campfire and tell each other stories and you, that's how you remember things, that's how you transmit culture, that's how you transmit knowledge and that was the like that was the majority of the time of how we've learned as humans. So we are wired for story. So if you can tell a good story, you can you can attach the things that you want to learn to that story or the things that you want to teach to someone else in that story. And it will stick so much more than if you just give it to them in a rote, you know, here, memorize this list of, you know, capital allocation items. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I love the work that you do on value after hours. So how did you start hanging out with Tobias Carlisle and Bill Brewster? How'd that happen? <laughs> Yeah, Toby and I, Toby and I have like were exchanging emails probably 2007, 2008, and had been been like internet friends, you know, for a really long time. And then in, I was uh, I taught a class at UC Davis after I graduated for a number of years on value investing. Kind of created our own little program in there, and I invited Toby up to give a guest lecture. I think in it's either 2010 or 11, I think, and Toby came up gave a great talk and we hung out. And then after that, you know, anytime we were in the same city, we would hang out, you know, I'd go to LA for something, hang out with Toby, Omaha, hanging out and uh, just got to know each other over, you know, a number of years. And then he wanted to, he wanted to start another show. He was doing interviews of investors and the, you know, they were, this was the acquirers podcast where he was, you know, like individuals, one-on-one interviews and just getting, you know, how do they tackle the investment process? And but he wanted to he had the idea for a show that would be a little lighter, kind of a little more fun, a little more casual. And so and also we met Bill together in probably 2017 at at Berkshire and hung out with him and then just got to know each other over a few years. And uh, then 2019 brought Bill and Toby and I together. And at the time we were like, oh, let's do like three episodes, see if it's if it's fun, if it's if anyone's paying it. Like, does anyone care? 
not real high hopes. Like I, I was actually pretty skeptical that it would make it past, you know, 10 episodes, but it was fun and we kind of kept going and then it sort of snowballed from there. And now it's kind of shocking, actually, the number of people who listen to it. I often don't believe that some, and if I actually, if I thought about it too much, how many people are listening, I probably would like get a little freaked out and not be very comfortable talking anymore because it's, it's a lot. <laughs> well, I was one of the original 10, so I've been listening to you guys from, from the beginning. <laughs> uh, I'd well, love to hear that. Always, en- always enjoyed it. Always a good conversation. One of the best things on it are your veggie segments. So for those listening who, who don't listen to Value After Hours, Jake frequently presents a veggie segment, which is like an educational segment from another discipline that can be applied to investing. So what have been some of your favorite veggie segments? You've had so many over the years now. Oh, boy. I don't know. Like, I honestly, I I forget most of them, unfortunately. And they're, they're kind of more short term often. But, you know, I always like the animal ones kind of the most. Like the ones that draw from nature are the most interesting. And that, probably because nature has, let's say, four billion years of history to to lean on. So anything that's emerged from that has really been pretty thoroughly baked that like this is something that works. And so I think it's often you can really hang your hat on things pretty that's a pretty sturdy hook to hang your hat when it comes to four billion years of sort of data. And then I think like the physical world as well. So like the math and and like hard sciences ones, physics, I think are are good too because they, you know, what are they? That's like a 13 billion years worth of data on that one that, you know, kind of gravity exists or works or, you know, so you can hang a pretty good hat on that one as well. So those ones are probably, I like the best, but I don't know. Like I, like I said, I forget them pretty quickly. And like, here's what I do know is that I am very tone deaf as to what I think people will like or not. Like there's ones that I think think will be like, oh man, this one's a real gem and it's, you know, nothing. And then there's other ones where I've been like, eh, kind of a little bit of a throwaway, but best I could do for this week. And then like it resonates for some reason. So I don't think I've got any kind of uh, insight as to like what's really going to work. So I just kind of just keep throwing spaghetti against the wall, honestly. <laughs> yeah, there have been some great ones. I like the one you were talking about with the animals, about how there's um, like size limitations to animals and how that can also be applied to oh, uh, yeah. companies and how how much they can actually grow. I thought that was pretty interesting. A couple of weeks ago, you had the great one about Horse racing, I thought that was super interesting. And because there's so many parallels between horse racing and investing. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? It's what's really fun about it is that it's it's a great forcing function to make me read and like a little bit wider and to think in a little bit more depth as I'm reading things like, oh, could I turn this into a segment that might be interesting? Is there enough here? Like, is there is this something I want to dig into a little bit more to like flush it out into a full segment? And so it just makes me go through the world in a little bit more of a curious curious fashion because I know I have a deliverable every week that like I need to show up with at least one thing that's kind of interesting. And so otherwise, it'd be really easy for me to be super lazy and just kind of like, oh, read something, kind of forget about it, move on, don't do any real deep work on it. And that's, you know, it's just, it's not as good a way to go through life probably. It's just better to to have that forcing function that keeps you a little bit more engaged, actively engaged with the world. Yeah, Munger talks a lot about that, and I, I agree. I think that's super important. Well, I wouldn't do it if I didn't have to like have that scary thing of like every Tuesday I've got to deliver something. So it'd be really <laughs> easy for me to just, you know, to coast. Yeah, it's good to have some discipline around things where you I need to meet this deadline every week. It's definitely something that encourages you to constantly push and do what you're supposed to do and keep learning and keep growing. 
Yeah, exactly right. I think that's actually a kind of a something that I've done reasonably well in life is to pick projects consciously that have that forcing function element in them that like, you know, teaching, for instance, at UC Davis was a forcing function to really like dig deep into the investment process. I'm not sure the students learned a whole lot, but I learned a ton having to, to do that. Writing a book was also a similar, you know, fire hose type of forcing function where you have to dig as deep as you can, break it down to the elemental level and try to build it back up into a coherent thesis. Like you had to do real work to get there to be able to do it. You know, the veggie segments are the exact same thing. It's a forcing function to keep me curious about the world. Journalytic is also a forcing function to really like think about the investment process at a super granular level where I'm thinking about like, how can I help someone be the best possible version of an investor that I can through software and like, and, and myself too. Like I'm, it, most of it is built for myself to try to overcome my own shortcomings and my own places where I want to be lazy and not like do the best, you know, thorough job that I can. So all of these things, all the projects I pick around are around forcing functions to like forcing me to do things I know that I should be doing or that I really want to dig deep on. Yeah, that's a good um, that's a good transition. So let's talk about journalytics. So I, I'm in agreement that writing and, and keeping a journal is a great way to learn to improve your investing process, to improve your life. Mm-hmm. I know that like my whole thing started with my blog where I was just, you know, posting about my PA. And the point was to have a public journal where I'm actually like documenting what I'm thinking at the time. Right. And then I go back and I read it and it's very embarrassing. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> well, but it's, I have the exact same experience with being somewhat mortified sometimes by my past journal entries. But I hope that I continue to be mortified because that means that I'm making progress and mm-hmm. that I'm getting I'm getting better. Like so I hope that the previous version of me, even today, is like staggeringly stupid because that means that like I've moved away from that. So I think you should give yourself a pat on the back that uh, you know, you could keep Hopefully everything, even what you're doing today is, is, you know, in posterity looks really dumb because that means that you've, <laughs> you know, you've learned a lot in the meantime. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I agree. So how does journalytic help this process? How does it help the journaling process for an investor? Yeah, the key elements is, is really about closing feedback loops and the investment process is sort of fiendishly difficult in that you have very, especially if you're, you know, kind of a, let's call it like a long only fundamental kind of you know, investor who's looking for qualitative insights often, which are, you know, often difficult to tease out and also really hard to tell if you got lucky or if you're actually good at this. Like luck versus skill is really hard to untangle in the investment world because it's such a long feedback loop and it's such a noisy environment. Like prices can move around in the interim all over the place and make you feel dumb, make you feel smart. But you it doesn't mean that you were right or wrong, actually. And even over a long period of time, like you, it, it takes an incredible amount of time and data to actually say whether you have any luck or skill in the investment world. But I think that we can shorten that up somewhat by if you have a little bit more of a rigorous process that you're documenting, and journaling helps with that in a in a major way. It helps you record, you know, obviously your journaling is a primary interface with the brain is what we're how I view it. And what we're trying to do is then take the things that you're putting in there and then structure it in a way where we can turn that into analytics that help you to understand your own process, understand the cause and effect of your decisions. And so that's where the name comes from is like journaling plus analytics, journalytic. And, you know, so for instance, 
recording your decisions and the reasons that you either bought something, sold it, passed on it, or didn't sell it, and other reasons even, like that coding why you decided something and then going back and looking at the cohort of all the times that you said, you know, X was the reason that I bought or Y was the reason that I didn't buy this one and seeing then later very easily, how did that cohort go on to perform and and then feeding that to you? Like you can all of a sudden start to just get these ahas of, oh my God, like I'm, I'm making a systematic error here. I need to take corrective action. So the first thing is just sort of awareness and that comes from data capture. And that's really what the you know the primary job right now is to just let's get all the data we can about your process just from you journaling and, and recording your as you're going along. And hopefully it's like almost a little bit fun to do, ideally. And then we can then show you the reports that that will hopefully drive an understanding of what your cause and effects are. And then how to, and then prospectively we're going to be working more on okay what are the interventions now that we know that you are making this systematic mistake and maybe other people like you make this similar mistake and maybe they make also this adjacent mistake so let's like let's correct for that as well while we since we know something about populations in general we're going to have a lot of interesting data that that kind of comes at the macro level of having so many users that we can then help the 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 bigger group to understand their own processes better gotcha so as you've been using the product, are there any consistent themes or errors that you've found in your own process that, that that it's helped identify for you? Well, so like I'm just now after I would say three years now of pretty solid usage, like daily usage, I'm just now probably getting to the point where my data set is like rich enough to actually start to draw some conclusions. So it's a little bit early to, I would say, like actually call real, real insights. But I, I do have one that's come up. When I have bought more of something because of the price decrease, that has not worked out very well for me as a thesis. Just purely price went lower as like the reason that I bought more, which tells me that, that I need to probably have a little bit of a better reason than purely just the price went down. <laughs> I mean, which I, I kind of already knew that, but you know, it, was, it typically is something that I owned a little bit of. And then it's like the price went down and I was like, okay, I'm just going to add a little bit more to this. That thus far has not been a very good strategy for me, but I will know even more, you know, over probably over the next year as I start to get like some data sets that are fully, a little bit more fully baked. And because it takes time for me to accumulate and it also takes a little bit of time for the the decision, each decision to to age, to have the, you know, like each vintage of decisions needs a little bit of curing time before you can sort of like do an analysis on it to say like, okay, yeah, it's been two years since I made that decision. Here, Here's what happened in the interim. I can now make an assessment as to like whether that was a good or good process or not. Gotcha. Yeah. I've had pretty similar experiences with buying stocks that have gone down. It so <laughs> didn't work out. You buy more of it. And yeah, it's, now I'm thinking more, it's probably better to take more of the, uh, you know, trim the weeds, what are the flowers kind of approach with investing where mm. if, if something is falling apart, it's probably a sign that maybe the thesis is broken. And before you just jump to the conclusion, the market is wrong. It's probably better to really take a step back and rethink it. Yeah. You know, another place that's not worked out very well for me has been, you know, I follow some some small cap activists and you know, I've I've piggybacked a little bit on a few of them, thankfully always in smaller dosages. But 
you know, I thought that what they were doing made sense. I thought like they would had a chance to actually add some real like sweat equity in a lot of these situations by making some managerial changes or strategic changes. Those have not worked out very well at, at all either as a reason code. You know, and it was you know small cap activism as one of my reason codes uh, has, has been a bit of a disaster. Now, again, you know, you you want to you don't want to completely like I, I think there's a little bit of a danger of kind of overcorrecting too quickly on some of this stuff as you as you learn about it. Like you probably want to always ease off the throttle one way or the other, not just go like full gas, full brakes on this stuff. But but I do think it's really important to have the system kind of up and running that helps you to like I, I know I'm going to be a better investor in five years because of the work that I'm doing today and the capturing and the follow up and just the rigorousness of the process. Like there's just it's just it's like seems scientifically self-evident to me that I'm going to be better because of this extra like little bit of meta game work that I'm doing. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the small cap activism, I mean, when you find an investor that you respect and they're doing something, it is really hard to separate the person from the idea. That's what I've found. Like if I'm going through 13 Fs and there's some investor I really respect and they're doing something, I have a strong temptation to go into it. And it's pretty yeah. much never worked out for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is it, a, is it a full over? I don't know. Like I, I've done okay, but yeah, in general, it's not been, I've, there's been a lot of other other reason codes that I've recorded that have been a lot more fruitful. And and most of the time I haven't done as deep of a work on those those other names as I do on the the ones that have different reason codes. And I think there's something to that as well. Yeah, there's probably some psychological factors where you're thinking, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. I <laughs> I don't need to dig as deep into this one if if so and so is into it. So yeah. Yeah, I can I can relate to that. Something I've wondered about journaling, and I've wondered if you found this through through your efforts in journaling, I find that my memory is unreliable. So I find that I'm an unreliable narrator of my own story. So I'll go back. So I'll think I bought some stock for, for X reason or sold yeah. for Y reason. And then when I go back and I read what I actually thought at the time, it's always different than my memory. Why do you think that is? Why do, why do you think uh, we're so uh, unreliable in that regard? I think you're 100% right. We are unreliable narrators. And I think it's some of it is that our subconscious wants to protect our ego. It wants to, like, we want to make sense of the world. And a lot of times things often just kind of don't make sense, especially over shorter periods of time. And so you'll end up in a, <laughs> you'll end up with your brain sort of re remembering. And I think it's important to understand how the brain works in that you, it's not, this like, you know, perfect recording device that's like, you know, a, your iPhone and you're recording a video of it. You know, it's it's this sensory input that's translated into a chemical or an electrical impulse and then stored and then kind of copied from one part of the brain to another part of the brain. And it's going to be lossy often, depending upon all kinds of things like your mood, your stress level. All of this stuff impacts how your brain actually functions. And then each time that you go and remember it, your brain is kind of like, okay, let's let's sort of like replay that and like reconfigure it together to show you. And but it's not it's not high fidelity. Like it it is often like just recreating a story that it sort of thinks it remembers, and it'll fill in a bunch of the details that may or may not be true. And so we try to re if we think that we're like this perfect recording device, we're not. And so we're it's very dangerous, and it really it ends up leaving your feedback loops open in a lot of ways in that you're not getting the actual like cause effect 
analysis because your brain is sort of just making a lot of those arrows up. And so you're just not going to be learning and like reality, it just doesn't match with, with what you think the model of reality that's in your head is. And anytime the model slips from reality, this is where mistakes happen. And this is where your, like, this is where surprise happens also. Surprise is your brain's realization that the model that you were working from no longer matches reality. So I think we're, we leave ourselves open to that. And, you know, it makes sense. Like, again, like we evolved to have a certain mother nature doesn't want to waste energy on things that don't matter about your survival and having a perfect recall of an exact situation, especially something esoteric, you know, like what was that corporate action, you know, or something, right. We weren't evolved to, to have that be perfect memory recall for that. Like we're, we're trying to survive on the Savannah and like, it's it's more often about emotional things like oh I, I like the grass was moving in a way that I thought there was a snake there like you're going to remember that so we're just not well equipped for the modern environment but that's what tools are all about like that's what that's what's made man so successful is that we've been able to take tools that that make up for our our shortcomings like we're not strong compared to most you know we're not to most primates we're not fast compared to you know a cheetah we don't have sharp claws or sharp teeth compared to most of the animal kingdom, but we're pretty goddamn good at, at tools. And using a tool, which I, you know, journalistic to me is like my second brain. Like that's my tool that helps me to do the things in this particular domain that I need help with and help me to have a much better recall and not have to depend on my brain so much. And so that's it, getting it out of my brain and into there. Actually, what's interesting is it frees up my brain then to think about some of these bigger like more creative things and some of these bigger ideas and how do they how do they fit in and I leave a lot of the minutia and a lot of the kind of process stuff that would bog my brain down I leave it in journalitic and it, it's it's actually very freeing to journal about this stuff and put it in there and then I don't have to remember it yeah that makes a lot of sense so something I've uh, I've always wondered about you you a lot of times you talk like a quant so how come you haven't gone towards a purely quantitative approach towards markets? Because you you very much have that kind of mindset. Like sometimes when I hear you talk, I feel like I'm hearing Jim O'Shaughnessy or something. So, <laughs> well, that's quite the compliment. <laughs> like when you're talking about psychology and processes and things like that, it seems like you very much would gravitate towards the quant side of things. No, I, I do actually. And I do have a... Like when I first started out, I almost was entirely quant driven because I just didn't trust that I had any kind of unique insight about like how a business worked or how the entire investment game works enough to be able to bet on that that insight. But I did feel like, okay, if I bought a basket of things that were statistically cheap, in general, that would work out over a long enough period of time and I could get comfortable with that. And so when I first started out, it was very much that. However, as I've studied Buffett and Munger more, as I put in all these reps, as it's been decades of learning, I think that now I've arrived that the market in general is very efficient. Almost most of the time, the price is pretty damn close to what something is is worth, like what the cash flow is going to be worth. There are disconnections, sure. You know, there will be pieces of the market that go off haywire and go crazy, you know, sometimes to the high side, sometimes to the low side. But in general, markets are pretty damn efficient. And you can arbitrage that efficiency a little bit through, I think, quant, whether it's you know value or momentum or quality or any of these like size, all the, the academic factors have that over long, long stretches have proven to basically arbitrage some part of human psychology 
and and you'll do a little bit better than the market. Okay, that's I think a reasonable place to arrive. I also think though that that the market is not perfectly efficient, and I think that there are time periods where the market will every once in a while throw off something that is just so obvious and so stupidly priced that if if you're kind of paying attention and you have even a little bit of first principles and a little bit of analytical rigor that you can recognize it and take advantage of it and if you were purely a quant it might not pop up to you and you you wouldn't be able to take advantage of it and so i'm a lot of the money that i run is is somewhat quantitatively run but there are i leave room for those very very obvious no brainer things that pop up and they don't happen very often but when they do i take advantage of them so that's so you're right like i am i do have a very quant kind of mentality and i think it's perfectly reasonable way to to run money i think it's smart i think it'll do better than average but i do think that there's also every once in a while these like very very obvious things to do and i i want to take advantage of those that makes a lot of sense yeah i think we're pretty much aligned on there where i think most times prices are correct and then sometimes you'll get you'll get a layup you'll get something that's really it's a really compelling opportunity and yeah if you're pure quant i agree you probably can't exploit that the way you could if you were more qualitative in your approach i think the other part of it too is that what's the point of all of this like okay you want to make money that's great like i i'm all for that but all right let's get to the let's get to the finish line and you know you and i are 85 years old and we've been running a quantitative strategy for that entire time. And maybe we made a lot of money. All right, well, you could do that and spend you know, a half an hour a month or something <laughs> executing that and go through your entire life without really learning a whole lot about how the world works or taking an active interest. And I, I liked that degree of freedom that I have away from being purely quant. And then it just makes me more actively engaged with like, well, how does that work? How's this business? Why is this business so successful? What's the human element here that is like, why is this person a good leader more than this person? All of this stuff of interacting with the world, I just, I'm, I'm much more curious about it because I have an economic interest in trying to figure it out. And and if and when you do get that insight of something that you you had to work kind of hard for because it's just been years of of looking for things, like it's very satisfying. And so- like to the, to have turned off my brain for the entire you know this entire trip, and even if maybe a, like I'm willing to actually probably have less money at the end of it if I had a more interesting journey to have gotten there and not have been purely quant and I allowed some qualitative that let me be a more active, engaged user of the world. I think that would be a worthy trade off. Yeah, I totally agree. And when whenever you're um, dealing with investing, whenever you're looking at companies or trying to understand what's happening right now. It is such an educational experience. It's almost a reward unto itself, like with without even making any money from it. Like if I'm a, every time that I look into a company, I'm learning something brand new about the world that I never understood before. So I, I agree. It's a it's a very engaging process. Yeah, and I think it. You know, if I if I wanted to model something for my my boys, like it would be like, hey, be actively curious about the world. Like that's a lot more fun way to go through life and you know, read widely, like kick the tires on a lot of stuff. Don't stay out, like just be actively inquiring into your world and not just letting it passively come at you. And I think that's a lot more, just a lot better way to go through life. And I think it'd be very easy for me to be lazy and quant and not really like look at the world very closely and just kind of, you know, play golf or whatever the hell <laughs> people do when they have nothing but free time. Yeah, that makes sense. So 
if you were to give advice to say someone who is graduating from college and they want to get, and they are starting to get interested in investing, what kind of advice would you have for a person like that? Well, I would say strongly consider whether you, if that's, if it's something that you're crazy passionate about, then I would say like pursue it, you know, full throated, like go after it. If it's something that you're only marginally interested in or worse, you like, you just think it's a way to make a lot of money. I would, I would try to dissuade you from, from pursuing that. Number one, the world could probably use more people working on important things like, you know, curing cancer or, you know, solving the energy issues or a million other things for, for humanity than, than trading pieces of paper and, you know, chasing, chasing returns and, you know, writing op-eds about the Fed or whatever. Like we probably have enough of those already, but if, you know, it's something that you're super passionate about, I think you, you know, you, it's a, it's a great place to go if you do care about it, because it, it is, it is a very satisfying situation when you, when you're, I think when you're doing it right, but if you're just doing it for the money, I think it will actually probably grind you down and actually, you know, you'll, you'll probably end up quitting at some point because, and, and disillusioned actually, because it can be a very cynical, conflicted space. Like the, the principal agent problems are immense. There's lots of gross behavior that happens in the finance world that you wouldn't really want to get on your shoe if you could avoid it. But if you're very interested in it, then I also think it's, you know, it's a very, it can be very satisfying if you do it in the way that, that you, that you want to do it. Good advice. I like that. So uh, do you, before we wrap up, do you have any closing thoughts? Hmm, boy, this might be a little bit of recency bias just because I've just finished reading it, but um, I was reading Peter Atia's new new book about called Outlive and it's all about health stuff. And I think in general, health is is very underappreciated. And even in the investment world, actually, like the energy that you can have access to, the clarity of thought that comes from good health, I think it's actually a very unfair advantage. When you look at people who are not as healthy, you know that they're just kind of fighting with one hand tied behind their back at that point. And it's really hard to imagine that they're going to be able to outwork somebody and outthink somebody who's who does have their health dialed in. Like we're at the end of the day, we're just like chemical processes and electrical synapses. And that has a certain environment where it is it performs at its peak. And if you take it away from that, it's just simply not going to perform as well. So I guess my PSA is focus on your health and make sure it's dialed in. And, and the other th nice thing about that is, is that it's really hard to fill up other people's cups in the world with your energy and your passion and your drive and your compassion if you don't have your cup overflowing already with energy. And in, in fact, you end up draining other people's if you if yours is kind of empty. And, you know, just your physical spirit, you know, your your essence is going to be diminished if you don't have your your best health. So, you know, take care of that health and that I think will then make the rest of your world just that much brighter. And if, if everybody did it, I think we'd actually probably have a lot of, there'd be a lot of positive knock-on second, third, fourth order effects. Yeah, that's probably true. Like, yeah, you think about it and we're probably very focused on things like the amount of heart disease that's happening and that type of thing. And those are like the first level things that are happening, but you're right. There's probably a lot of secondary and tertiary things that happen as a result of good health to a society that uh, that we probably don't even think about. Well, yeah. I mean, I actually, I think our human capital is is largely compromised right now in a lot hmm. of ways. Like 
we're not getting as much creativity out of our citizens as we could. We're not getting the the energy and the the enthusiasm that we could because like literally you'd like feel like crap because you, you know, you didn't exercise or you ate poorly or not getting enough sleep or have too much stress in your life. All of those things add up and create a situation where it's just a suboptimal human showing up every day. And mm. that, that absolutely matters. I think over, over a long enough period of time, I think we, where we could end up versus where we do end up could be very far apart from each other. If we, if we continue with our, really poor health outcomes, I would say in general right now. I mean, especially on, we're pretty good at like medicine's pretty good at, at the acute things like, oh, you broke your arm. Let's, let's fix it. Oh, mm -hmm. you know, you were in a car accident. Let's, let's put your body back together. But the long, long-term, you know, slow to play out diseases, like we're very bad at managing that. Like we're, we wait until the problem is just like overwhelming. And then we, then it intervenes, but it's already too late at that point. Like the disease has been building for decades at that point. And so getting out in front of that through behavior changes is, is the much cheaper and easy, like actually easier way to deal with it than waiting until like you show up to the doctor and you're diabetic or have health or heart disease or cancer or all of these things that are, that take decades to actually build up and, and grow into. Right. And we spend most of our time like basically trying to medicate the bad things once they've already happened rather than trying to encourage behaviors that would prevent them in the first place. Yeah. And 18% of GDP as well is yeah. going into that. Like it's, we're spending like one in four, six, five, six dollars gets spent basically on these interventions that if we, we could spend a penny 20 years ago to make it, make it not be there later. Like I, I think it's, it's actually incredibly frustrating to, to to view from the outside and just be like, oh my gosh, there's so much waste that's happening here and actually so much human misery that really is sort of unnecessary. I think it would be awesome if we could figure out a way to to fix that. Yeah, I agree. That's awesome. So what are the best places to reach you and learn about you? I'm not too hard to find anymore on the internet, I guess. Twitter is probably like one of the easier places. I'm Farnham Jake one there journalytic.com for if the investment side of things. Farnham Street is my investment management company. Value After Hours on on all the typical podcasting services that comes out. I think we release the audio every Monday, if I remember right. I don't know. Toby does all that stuff. So <laughs> Yeah, I, I think uh, it's Mondays on the podcast, and then it's Tuesdays for the live YouTube event. Right. So yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. So, All right, cool. Thank you for coming on today. VSG is a real pleasure. You know, we've we've known each other for a few years now, so it's it's fun to get a chance to to hang out and chat with you. So I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.